0: listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Omar. Hi, Bob. How are you? Not bad. How are you doing? Well, it's been
1: a rough couple of months, but getting by.
0: Hasn't it? Let me uh, introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You are Omar uh, Badar. Um, a Palestinian-American political analyst. Until recently, you were deputy director of the Arab American Institute, I think, and you're still, what, on the board or something? Or something, what are you?
1: Yeah, I'm on the National Policy Council of the Arab American Institute. Okay,
0: and you write uh, for places like Newsweek and so on. I don't know, any
1: other things you want to mention? Yeah, just, you know, plenty of college campus lectures and debates and media appearances on this issue. I've basically dedicated my... A, a huge portion of my adult life to the issue of Palestine right. and Israel. Right.
0: Let me start off by asking you a question about uh, Palestinian-American identity. Uh, of course, the broader context for this discussion is going to be, uh, you know, Gaza and so on, um, and the various ramifications of that internationally and domestically. But uh, I heard somebody on Twitter saying, how can Rashida Talib say she's in Palestinian when she was born in America? Like, what is your conception of kind of what constitutes Palestinian-American identity?
1: To me, it feels a little bit more intuitive than that, to be honest. You know, Uh no Irish-Americans celebrate Irish heritage. We know Italian-Americans do the same. There doesn't strike me anything that is particularly different about Palestinian-American identity. To be frank with you, I'm not huge on the identity politics front. And for me, Palestinian identity in particular feels a little bit different because it is an identity that is being targeted for erasure. And because of that, um, I think a lot of people feel the need, to, you know, rightly so, to be much more assertive with that identity. There is an effort literally unfolding on the ground to eliminate Palestinian society and Palestinian existence. And in light of that, uh, I think people who come from that background, people like Rashida who have family living on the ground in Palestine, she goes to Palestine to visit her grandmother. Um, calling herself Palestinian-American seems just, it, it's, it's difficult for me to understand why that would be even controversial. Uh-huh.
0: And you have, do you have ancestors on both sides of your family uh, from Palestine?
1: Yeah, my mother's family was driven out in 1948 with the creation of Israel, the first wave of driving out Palestinians. Uh, my father was driven out of the West Bank, which was occupied by Israel in 1967. So both sides of my family are Palestinian.
0: Okay. And when you say targeted for erasure, you don't mean the plan is to kill all the Palestinians. You mean the plan is to deny that they're Palestinians and just say you'll have to find another label for yourself because there's no such thing.
1: Another label and, frankly, ethnic cleansing that is taking place in slow motion as we speak. I think this has uh, been long standing before this crisis in Gaza, what we're witnessing in the West Bank, which is under illegal Israeli occupation is an effort to take over the territory inch by inch and confine Palestinians to smaller and smaller areas within the West Bank. Um, Most egregiously, we see this unfolding in places like East Jerusalem, where uh, Israel is quite literally forcing Palestinians out of their homes and replacing them with Israeli settlers who come and take over those homes by Mm -hmm. court order. Um, This process is deliberately very, very slow in order to minimize the global outrage about it. But it's been going on for year after year after year. And that is changing the demographics of a place like Jerusalem quite very deliberately and systematically,
0: yeah. now, in the West Bank, more broadly, there was a pretty sharp uptick after October seventh in the rate at which Palestinians were being, you know, violently or forcibly displaced um from their villages. Has that what has happened? I wrote about that in the Non-Zero newsletter about a month ago. And at that point, the numbers were quite high compared to, uh, before October seventh, has that Biden has made some noises about uh, toning that down. what w- What is the status of that? I, so I don't mean East Jerusalem. I mean the rest of the West Bank,
1: sure. I mean, look, because there is this process unfolding anyway, um the right wing government of Israel and its extremist settler you know, um extensions are always looking for an excuse to accelerate that process whenever they can and when an event like October 7th happens they feel like they have the political cover at this point that the world's attention is focused elsewhere that there is this sense of righteous indignation that israel is you know um has the right to retaliate and all of that and that allows these groups to start carrying out more violence and ethnic cleansing and and all of that in a much more aggressive fashion and i think this is what we're witnessing unfolding And the Biden administration certainly has said a lot of the right things as far as that is concerned, calling for an end to settler violence and an end to settlement expansion and all of that. But it's really meaningless at the end of the day because we have a dynamic in which Israel understands fully that this is not going to go beyond rhetoric, that the Biden administration is never going to meaningfully threaten U.S. military funding for Israel or U.S. diplomatic protection for Israel. And so this amounts to symbolic protest and Israel carries on doing whatever it wants, however it wants.
0: And do you think, I mean, if the constraints you identify exist, I mean, well, are they constraints? If Biden feels he just cannot credibly threaten to actually cut off significant military aid to Israel, um, is he just accurately perceiving political forces that were remain in effect for a very long time in America? So you just can't expect different kind of behavior from a president? Or do you think he actually has more political leeway?
1: That's an excellent question. Look, I, I think there is a, a problem of American leadership on this issue in general, and that to get tough with Israel means that you are going to have a significant fight with the Republicans in Congress, uh, with APAC, with many Democrats who are backed by APAC as well. So this is not going to be an easy road domestically. And you don't have American presidents who are eager to spend the political capital having that fight. They have many other priorities, domestic ones that seem more important for them as far as elections are concerned, on healthcare, on the economy and everything else. And the thought is why pick a fight that is going to be difficult to win on this issue. And unfortunately, even though that might make sense as a domestic calculus to some extent, the consequences of it are absolutely horrific. It means that Israel, that the United States policy internationally is on the side of an apartheid government. That is what every major human rights organization describes Israel as and a government that is carrying out just unspeakable war crimes and crimes against humanity. And it really undermines U.S. credibility when we talk about freedom and human rights and, and all of that and talking about the need to defend Ukraine from Russian invasion and occupation. Just the hypocrisy is way too glaring that you have the exact opposite policy where America supports Israeli invasion and occupation of the Palestinian territories with this unlimited military aid and unlimited uh, diplomatic protection. So it's not cost free at the end of the day. And the one other thing I'll say about it is that the demographics within the Democratic Party are changing significantly on this issue where the younger people really want to hold Israel accountable. So there has been a shift in the base of the Democratic Party that the party leadership is not paying enough attention to and it really is overdue for a significant policy i think
0: i think it has started to get their attention i do think it surprised them did it surprise you and we're basically talking about two kinds of things i think on the one hand there's the activism the actual demonstrations and then there's also polling results showing that younger democrats especially pretty broadly are not as are are, are more supportive of the palestinian cause less automatically supportive of, of israel than uh, older democrats right
1: it's 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 pretty stark across, you know, across the spectrum by age, but there is also the sense, you know, there is a huge gap between American policy and American public opinion on a wide range of issues. Americans want action, stronger action on climate change. They want Medicare for all. There are so many things that are popular that policymakers don't do simply because it's not a primary voting issue. They're not, they still feel pretty good about being elected, even though they break with a consensus, so they end up prioritizing special interest uh, money and influence over the will of the American public. And what's, I think, been surprising about this issue for them is the depth of feeling about it. It's not just a matter of, in the case of this monstrous assault on Gaza right now, of the fact that an overwhelming majority of Americans want to support a ceasefire. It's that unprecedented numbers of Americans are taken to the streets. Week after week. So there is a level of passion about this that's causing the Democrats to really think twice and and realize that there is also something politically, domestically to lose in terms of continuing to ignore these voices.
0: Now, of course, what the Biden administration would say in terms of the consistency between this and the Ukraine policy is that in both cases, um, you know, in effect, the other side started it. Uh, You know, Russia invaded Ukraine. And Hamas staged that attack. I mean, both were actually violations of, of international law, which is something I emphasize when I look at these things, uh, because it's relatively clear, uh, uh, a relatively clear kind of paradigm. Um, but th- they might not emphasize the international law thing so much. But you know what they would say? There was there were these atrocities committed. It, it, it was, there was this horrific attack, and so Israel is defending itself. Much as Ukraine is defending itself, although of course none of none of Israel's uh, actual territory is under uh, under foreign occupation now, um, uh, uh, except in the sense that you would mean it, of course, that territory that is not Israel's is under Israeli occupation. But anyway, what do you say? Um, uh,
1: what do you say to that? Look, I think the fundamental misunderstanding here is the idea that this began on October seventh. I mean, if that is your starting point, that would be an accurate depiction, but the reality is this did not start on October 7th. On October 6th, the day before, the question is, what was life like for Palestinians? And from the beginning of the year until October 6th, more than 250 Palestinians had been killed by Israel, overwhelmingly in the West Bank. You have a situation in which the people living in Gaza had been under an unlawful blockade for 17 years, in which they have no economy, they can't trade with the outside world, they're not allowed to have an airport they're not allowed to have a seaport, where half the population of Gaza is unemployed, where food insecurity is rampant, and where people have no hope for a better future for their children. That was the status quo, in which Israel had, in many cases, initiated mass Mm -hmm. violence against Palestinians in Gaza. In 2009, they killed more than 1,400 Palestinians, including more than 300 children. In 2014, they killed more than 2,200 Palestinians, including more than 550 children. And what's unique about October 7th is the direction of the violence, not the kind of it, because we've seen this kind of mass violence be directed against Palestinians time and again in a context in which the international community, including the UN and major human rights organizations, still consider Gaza to be occupied because Israel controls all of it, even though Israel withdrew settlers in 2005. So it's a situation in which you can't claim to have ended the occupation of Gaza If you still control everything that goes in and out and whether anybody can go in and out and whether people can leave for medical treatment, whether medical equipment can go in, Gaza is very much still under Israeli occupation. And so what the the better analogy here is similar to the ANC in apartheid South Africa carrying out terrorism against white people in South Africa. Those were atrocities. There is no question about it. And certainly to the extent that Hamas has targeted Israeli civilians, there is no question that that is terrorism. It is a war crime and it is acts of violence that are indefensible, but they are occurring in a context of much greater Israeli state terrorism against Palestinians. And so we have the chicken and the egg here a little bit reversed. And it is Palestinians who are responding to and fighting back against a posture in Israel in which they are inherently the initiators of violence because they control Palestinian lives and impose a system of apartheid on them um, that is in Plain violation of of human rights and international law.
0: Okay, um, I'm going to ask you a question about the the current state of, of play on the ground in in Gaza, kind of, and 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 regionally, I guess. Uh, uh, before we get back to some of these issues about, uh, you know, kind of the, the history of this and the root causes, but um, the uh, do you see any hope right now? We are uh, there's been a two day extension of the pause in fighting while there's an exchange of uh, prisoners and hostages. Um, Do you see any realistic possibility that this evolves into an actual enduring ceasefire without hostilities resuming first?
1: Yeah, It's, it's not completely out of the question, but I suspect it is unlikely. I think Israel has an interest in some level of de-escalation because they realize they must know that they set up goals that are practically unachievable. The idea of defeating Hamas militarily um, would require the complete and total destruction of the Gaza Strip. That is what it would take Mm -hmm. for them to actually achieve that goal. And unfortunately, it seemed like that's the path that they had been on. But they are realizing that there is significant international pressure building against that, against the kind of atrocities that they've been committing, the mass indiscriminate bombing of civilian areas, Uh, the wiping out of entire families, the killing of, you know, nearly 7,000 children at this point. I mean, those are atrocities that the world is not, uh, that, that don't reflect kindly on Israel for obvious reasons. And so there is a bit of debate internally, I'm sure, about what goals they've set for themselves and whether they're achievable. And there is a chance that they may be eager for some international pressure to compel them to back down. So it doesn't seem like they have made the decision to back down a little bit on their own however on the other side of this netanyahu understands that his political career is over as soon as this war is over um because the extent of his failure of being the person who promised the israeli public time and time again that he's the only person who can keep the israel safe and that he's going to do it by pummeling palestinians into submission and being the harshest uh, prime minister in terms of violating and suffocating palestinians and that has backfired and created one of the worst terrorist attacks that Israel has ever seen, um, and that undermines his credibility in a way that I think his political survival is really hanging by a thread. So he's interested for his own narrow purposes to continue this war as long as possible. And that, I think, puts us in a in a situation where it seems more likely that we are going to be heading towards indefinite violence uh, with, with absolutely horrific consequences for the people living in Gaza.
0: Well, and it seems like it's gonna you, you may see a new level of it or a new kind of it, because I don't understand quite what the next uh, Israeli step is in military terms. I mean, it can't be like the I mean, you know, the first step was to get most of the civilians to leave northern Gaza, which allowed israel and 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 Hamas seems to have taken advantage of that opportunity to itself relocate largely uh, to, to South, uh, to South Gaza. And, but now, uh, Israel presumably can't do that again, since Egypt won't let them flee further South. And it's hard to imagine them saying, okay, go back to the North now where half of the buildings are destroyed. Um, I don't, uh, and so that leaves them actually fighting true urban combat, trying to, you know, and I don't, I don't see how this doesn't get much, much, much messier from Israel's point of view. I mean, it's been horrific, of course. It's been massively violent. But from Israel's point of view, it hasn't been really messy in a military sense, right?
1: You you have to consider, yeah, I think, I don't know what the exact numbers on the Israeli side, but I think they've lost something like 60 or 70 soldiers. Right,
0: it's like nothing compared to the other side, yeah. Yeah,
1: compared to the just the killing of nearly 20,000 Palestinians on the other side, certainly the the numbers are not even close. But the the issue is, I think that there is an Israeli fantasy and it's hard to know to what extent it's a fantasy versus an actual plan that is being acted out of forcing the displacement of Palestinians outside of Gaza and preventing them from returning. There's no question that this is something that Israeli leaders leaders have talked about for a very, very long time. Many of them have verbalized it in the course of this onslaught, And there was a physical plan produced to that effect that said that the way to do it is to displace Palestinians from the north of Gaza to the south, and then to bomb the south and leave them no option but to flee into Egypt. Obviously, there is right now rhetorical American opposition to that. Biden says that's not a policy that he would support. Egypt is pretty dead set against it for multiple reasons. One, they don't want Palestinians in their country in the first place as refugees. But second, they also understand the political cost for them of having participated in the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians is not something that's going to be popular with their people either. So it may come to Israel literally leaving no choice for the survival of Palestinians apart from forcing that border open. Um, and we're then in uncharted territory about how what that actually looks like, whether the border does open, whether it does not, whether people continue effectively. I mean, if if they go back to cutting off the food supplies and water and all of that, to all of Gaza, again, as this fighting resumes, we are looking at extremely horrific prospects for the entire population living in Gaza. More than a million and a half, you know, 1.4 million of them have been displaced already. It it really is a scale of atrocities that we had never seen before, Um, greater than anything Israel had done before in Palestine, which is quite remarkable to think of Israel's creation in which 700,000 Palestinians have been displaced Nearly twelve to fifteen thousand had been killed. The fact that this episode that we're witnessing right now is even greater than that in terms of scale of killing and displacement is is um, really puts things in perspective.
0: Um, in terms of like, let's do the thought experiment. Suppose they eliminated Hamas. Suppose they somehow hunted down everyone who was in the militant part of you know everyone who would carry a gun in Hamas, and they killed them and they killed the leadership. And by the way, even in the fleeing to Egypt scenario, even if that happens, I don't know how they don't keep a lot of militants fleeing along with them, unarmed presumably, but still they're there uh, ready to, and that's of course another reason the, the Egyptian government doesn't want this to happen. But um, the uh, let's suppose that they quote, eliminated Hamas, and I'm not sure how you do it without killing almost all of these people. I don't know what else they actually mean uh, by eliminate Hamas, is your is your feeling that ultimately something very much like Hamas rises up? I mean, let's imagine they they do this without the population fleeing. So you still have uh, you know uh, well over a million people in Gaza, and uh, Hamas per se no longer exists. Uh, What do you think happens? Do you wind up just getting another something maybe called something other than Hamas, but slowly you get
1: uh, 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 the emergence of a significant militant movement? There is absolutely no question. And this is not a matter of speculation. This is a matter of looking at the track record of how we got here in the first place. These militant groups grow out of Israeli atrocities against Palestinians. That is how they are created. And for every Hamas militant that you're killing now, when you're looking at the scale of killing of children's parents and family members, these are kids who are going to grow up wanting vengeance. There's no question about it, especially if there's no prospect for Palestinian freedom on the other end of this, which Israel seems intent on not allowing people in Gaza to live free lives, still wants to control everything that goes in and out by the end of all this. This is a recipe for further violence and further bloodshed. We've seen it in Lebanon when Israel invaded and how that Catalyzed the growth of Hezbollah as a far more powerful militant group that now is on their northern border. We see this time and time again, where the more you think that you can pummel people into submission, the more resistance you create. Because frankly, no people anywhere on the planet would want to live without freedom and basic human rights. That's just a, a basic human instinct, and it's it's honestly breathtaking the level of racism that exists right now within Israeli society that there is this genuine belief that you can just impose on Palestinians to live like like caged animals and think this is a situation is not going to explode in some way, um, is, is just utter insanity. We have to get to the point to where Israel sees Palestinians as equal human beings who are des- deserving of the same dignity and freedom that Israelis enjoy. And that is going to be our only recipe out of this. What specific political form it takes, one state or two states or all that, can be debated, but fundamentally, We can't have Palestinians continuing to live under occupation and apartheid. That is a system that has to come to an end.
0: Okay, so let's talk about whether anything good in the long run could uh, come out of this. Like, could this be the thing that breaks the ice and leads to some kind of enduring settlement? Um, And I want to just stipulate the beginning that, you know, in assessing the consequences of Hamas's attack, you know, if the assessment is, well, maybe something good could come out of that, that's not the same as endorsing the attack. We're, ju- we're just trying to figure out what the consequences are. Um, and uh, my first reaction when I got the news was, or one of my first reactions was, this is not good for the Palestinians. And it kind of gets back to the di- dynamic you were just describing, it w- You know, where you, you were kind of saying, look, you got to understand, hatred is the, dr- is the ultimate driving energy. You, if, you're, if you're killing uh, pe- people in Hamas and at the same time making Palestinians, if anything, more deeply hateful of Israelis uh, and more res- you know, uh, indignant about the violation of rights and so on, in the long run, you're just fueling more of this. You can say the same thing about the other side, right? The Israelis, I, I mean, the more hateful you make them— uh, the more vengeful you make them, the more of a problem you have. And I'm sure you've observed, as I have, the effect of, of, of October 7th on on kind of psychology in Israel. I mean, I know Israelis whom I had always thought of as as peaceniks who were very good at kind of understanding what's going on in the, in the minds of the people on the other side and so on who I'm just watching them on Twitter and they've changed and and, and kind of predictably in a way. I mean, Pete, you know, this happens. People, you undergo a national trauma, uh, th- things change. Um, so uh, what, I know that's a long-winded question, but you get the upshot, right? Yeah, Can yeah. anything good come out of this
1: in spite of everything I just said? I'll backtrack before answering that question directly, just to comment on some of the things that you've said. Um, on the question of hatred, To me, hatred is a symptom and not the driving force. Okay, Um, Hatred is the consequence of a political injustice. It's precisely what you described. Because at the end of the day, there is a system of inequality imposed on Palestinians that denies them their freedom, that causes them to rebel in violent ways, that increases hatred on the Israeli side, and it becomes a cycle. But to break it is not to try to address the hatred as much as it is to try to uh, address the underlying injustice which is occupation and apartheid. And I think a good parallel here again is South Africa. When white people were killing black people and then black people were setting up bombs and killing white people, the way out of this, everybody understood the way out of it was to end apartheid. That's the goal you get there. And then once you resolve that political injustice, you start dealing with truth and reconciliation and bringing people together and all of that. It is simply impossible right now to be moving in the direction of building a genuine sense of community and mutual understanding between people when they the relationship between them is one of master and slave, figuratively speaking, of such uh, occupier and occupied, a, a dominant population and a dominated one. That is not a setup that is going to facilitate something positive, and we have to start dealing with that underlying injustice, which can only change by external pressure because it doesn't look like the forces within Israeli society right now, politically, are moving in a direction that is going to move us towards that. And, and on the question of Palestinians on, on October 7th, I really think it's important to remember that Palestinians have pursued literally every path towards liberation possible. They sat down for negotiations in the so-called peace process. Israel did not take the negotiations seriously. The imbalance of power was simply too great that Israel just proceeded to build more and more settlements throughout the entirety of the peace process. You know, they were supposed to negotiate an end to the occupation of the Palestinian territories, which international law requires Israel to withdraw from. So this isn't just an act of generosity or or charity that people are expecting from Israel. But Israel responded by building more and more settlements and entrenching that occupation. Palestinians in Gaza marched in 2018, unarmed to Israel's fence to demand an end to the siege. Israeli snipers opened fire on them, killing medics and journalists and students. And this is all documented by every major human rights organization. Can I ask
0: you a question? I mean, presumably the Israelis were worried that they would keep marching into. Right. And that was the plan, right?
1: That was the plan. So they were going to
0: cross the border.
1: Yeah. Okay. The the thing is, the alternative is, no, you have to remain caged in this 25 mile by five mile strip in which Mm -hmm. you're not allowed to leave. And that is unacceptable. That is what drives people to take bold and. Seemingly otherwise reckless actions of marching on a militarized border, unarmed, and demanding an end to that siege. Um, So that was unacceptable. And Palestinians were mowed down with minimal international, um, you know, like human rights organizations do their job by documenting these atrocities, but no governments are moved to apply meaningful pressure on Israel. Palestinians go to the International Criminal Court to try to get Israel prosecuted for these war crimes. The US applies pressure on the International Criminal Court and Um, basically pressures them against pursuing those charges. Palestinians in Israeli military prisons who are rotting there without charge or trial by the thousands, some of them go on hunger strike, some of them die on hunger strike, and nothing gets resolved. You just have a situation, and then you have international activists organizing boycotts, economic pressure on Israel to get them to end uh, the, the violence against Palestinians and here in the united states you end up having politicians speaking out against the boycotts of israel as acts of economic terrorism and israeli officials oh. and,
0: and states and it. states passing laws that penalize certain categories of people who want to do business with the state government or something if they don't
1: Affirmed that they oppose the boycott, right? Which, I mean, which is which is a, a clear violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, I don't
0: think it's going to make it past the Supreme Court, but right now that is the law in a number of states. I think it's still up for legal challenge in, in many, Malaysia, many, many, many states. And the
1: ACLU has challenged it; it has defeated it in yeah. a handful of states, but it remains the law yeah. in many states. But, but let me
0: ask you about the one point that you probably know—you uh, know—critics of yours will fix on uh which is the 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 Camp David 2 and Taba which which are considered uh this is like a couple of decades ago a little more uh the most promising chances uh chances for peace there were these negotiations about a two state solution and the standard story is that uh well i think it's true that yasser arafat didn't uh counter offer whatever the offer was uh why don't you and 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 that is taken as a clear example of the Palestinians not pursuing an opportunity. why don't why don't you explain why you think that's wrong?
1: Sure. So for context first, I think it's it's worth noting that the entire two-state project was a massive Palestinian compromise. Palestinians were insisting on all of historic Palestine being their land. They were displaced when Israel was created, as I mentioned. Hundreds of Palestinian towns and villages were just obliterated and erased from the map in order to allow for a Jewish state to exist with a Jewish majority. So for Palestinians for for a very, very long time, their idea of a Palestinian state was supposed to be all of it from the river to the sea as a Palestinian state. By the 1980s. Can I
0: just quickly, what would that entail for Jews in Israel? Because as you know, from the river to the sea is taken by some to be a call
1: for genocide. The dominant use of this slogan right now, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is advocated for by people who want to see full equality between Palestinians and and Jewish Israelis in the entirety of the land. So what you end up with is a reality in which Jews are no longer a majority because Palestinian refugees returning means Jews become a minority in Palestine. But nonetheless, people who have the right to live there like anybody and everybody else. So it's a vision in which Israel is transformed from a state that privileges the Jewish population and puts Palestinians down to a state in which everybody has the same, you know, one one person, one vote. And that de facto creates a free Palestine because then you have a Palestinian majority in which everybody is equal and everybody has human rights. So I know that this slogan means different things to different people and so on, but I hear this all the time and I interact with activists who chant it on street corners and with politicians who advocate for it, and what they mean by it is absolutely a state in which everybody is equal and in which Jewish Israelis today would enjoy exactly the same rights that Palestinians get to enjoy where everybody is equal.
0: Um, Okay. I want to ask one more um, question about that, and then we can get back to to, uh, Camp David, too. Sure. Um, The, uh, you know, a lot... uh, some Israelis say, well, okay, but if if you even just give uh, Palestinians the vote, and if that included the ones in Gaza, then they have close to, Palestinians have close to a majority, counting the Palestinian citizens of Israel proper, and there is so much uh, built up hatred and vengeance that they will drive us out of Israel or exterminate us or something as a practical matter even if all you mean is one person, one vote, when you say from the river to the sea?
1: Look, it's it's a situation in which you have, again, for me, the level of hatred that currently exists is a result of injustice. And I am. I'm, it's the, exactly the same rhetoric of white people in South Africa who are talking about the fears of, of ending apartheid. Same with the fear of white people in the United States, although demographically, it's very, very different given the fact that black people are a minority in the US. But there is this fear that if you unshackle and oppressed people, that that's a threat then for the oppressor class. And the reality is nobody can pretend that there is no threat at all, but that you cannot sustain a situation of oppression out of fear that freedom for everyone might lead to something negative. That's That's not an acceptable status quo. And then you still use all your political capital and all the power and influence that you have to ensure a positive outcome. Frankly, the imbalance of power right now is so significantly in favor of Israel that it's not difficult to envision a political process that a lot of major powers are involved in that ensure a peaceful transition to a one state reality in which nobody is oppressed or killed or driven to the sea or any of that. And I think, again, if Palestinians have the prospect of living free in their land, I think we would see that hatred and motivations for extremism dissipate across the board. And you can create a much better reality for everyone.
0: Okay, I swear we'll get back to Camp David, too. But one more thing. I don't know if you caught my conversation with Matt Iglesias on this subject, but he on the subject of the one state solution, he said a couple of things. First of all, uh, well, let's just uh, uh, one thing he said was that uh, Hamas will interrupt anything that promises to be anything other than actually driving them into the sea maybe that's a character of what he said but but he was like you know Hamas doesn't want uh, uh, uh some kind of like a binational liberal democracy um they, they want an Islamist government and so on uh and they would disrupt violently any movement toward uh something something other than that um but the other thing he said was. Why don't the Palestinians have a plan? They talk about a one-state solution. Again, he didn't put it exactly like this. But we haven't seen any, like, white papers, uh, you know, from Palestinian activists in the West Bank or something actually laying out how this happens.
1: Yeah, look, it's, I mean, it's twofold. First, the first thing to say is that Netanyahu and a significant portion of the Israeli government and the Israeli settler movement also would try to disrupt any possibility for a one state in which there is equality. What they insist on is either a one state apartheid reality, which is what we currently have, um, or a situation in which Palestinians are ethnically cleansed. So yes, we get that there are plenty of political forces who don't want to see a better future in which everybody lives in equality. And the question is, where do you invest your energy um, as the United States government, whether you're going to push it in favor of oppression and a relationship of dominance or whether you're going to use your influence to push for a different kind of relationship. And that to me is the fundamental realities. Of course, there's gonna be many people who want to disrupt um, a, a one state reality in which everybody lives equally. And our job is to advocate for the opposition of that and to try to isolate those forces. And I'll just mention on the on the question of Hamas and extremism, at the beginning of the peace process, and I really use quotes for peace process, because again, it was a charade that Israel pretended was a peace process only to use it as cover to entrench the occupation. But at the beginning of it, when Palestinians were in fact hopeful that a better future was possible, support for violence and support for groups like Hamas hit an all-time low. These were isolated groups that carried out desperate acts of violence to disrupt a process that a majority of Palestinians living in Palestine actually supported. It is only when it became clear that the Israeli government has no interest in giving Palestinians self-determination that things broke down and that you see the support. Increase substantially to groups like Hamas and people who are advocating for violent resistance against occupation and so on. So it is again as back to the symptom versus driving cause. When there is genuine, meaningful hope for Palestinians to achieve genuine freedom in their own land, I think that really changes the dynamics very, very significantly. And that that really is 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 where we ought to be focusing on our energy. Um, um, I'm happy okay. to talk about Cam David. Okay, as well. and, and to set
0: the too. stage, the deal on the table, broadly speaking was, you know, okay, we're not going to give you all of the West Bank back because some of these settlements are so dense and they're right along the Israeli border. So we'll keep those. This is Israel saying this kind of with America. We'll keep those, uh, but we will evacuate the more remote, smaller settlements. And then in exchange for the settlements, we're keeping Will give you land. I don't know if they were actually to the point of of offering a one to one swap, uh, but you, you can fill us in on that. But that that is broadly uh, speaking the idea. We'll give you land swaps, and then you will have uh, you know the West Bank will be more or less a continuous expanse, uh, and that was broadly there were restrictions on on. There were limits to how sovereign a state this was going to be. Israel was going to police the the uh, the border with Jordan, uh, which normally you wouldn't, uh, a sovereign state would not tolerate. They would want to control their own borders. Uh, and there were some other limits, I think. But uh, is that, broadly speaking, the, the deal on the table? And you can add anything you want and then explain why Yasser Arafat didn't seem interested.
1: Sure. I'll I'll say two things. One, just to reiterate the point I was making earlier about the fact that the two state solution is a major Palestinian compromise. Because Palestinians were driven out from historic Palestine and what became Israel for a very, very long time, Palestinians meant a free Palestine was all of historic Palestine. By the 1980s, the balance of power, the reality of it, has hit Palestinians that they were willing to make this compromise to go by the UN definition of what Israel is and what the occupied Palestinian territories are. Which is to say that Israel need, keeps nearly 80% of the land, 78 to be technical, and Palestinians build a small state on merely 22% of historic Palestine the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. And that tiny state is a state that Israel is, is land that Israel is obligated under international law to withdraw from. And so the peace process began in 1993 with the idea that Israel was going to be gradually withdrawing. But all Israel did throughout the peace process is withdraw from major Palestinian cities while expanding settlement control of much of the West Bank as quickly as possible. And it was rhetoric that Israeli leaders used explicitly. Sharon is famous, uh, Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Sharon is famous for saying, settlers should run and grab as many hilltops as possible because by the end of this process, whatever we don't already hold on to is going to go to Palestinians. So there's the sense of urgency on Israel's part to extend its takeover of large parts of the West Bank. So by the time we get to Camp David, the settler population in the occupied Palestinian territories had increased dramatically, had grown from something like 100,000 uh, people to, I think at the time it must have been close to 500,000 people or so, I don't remember the exact numbers, but um, they negotiations, I know that there's a lot of dispute about what exactly was offered, but. And there's a million books about it and a million backs and forests about it. And the reality is it was very clear that Israel was not offering a withdrawal to the 1967 borders. They were not offering an end to the occupation. And it's not just a matter of settlements that existed at the beginning of the peace process. It's a matter of settlements that Israel built since the beginning of the peace process for the following seven year period. Say, effectively, the 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 example that many Palestinians use, it's like two people sitting down to negotiate how to divide a pizza. And one side is just eating the pizza and saying, but let's keep talking. We'll figure out which part you get at the end of this conversation. Obviously, that's not a a meaningful good faith negotiation. And without getting into the details of it, uh, because again, I think we can go about numbers and statistics. It was clear that what Palestinians were being offered was not a viable state in the sense that Israel would still control its borders, that the West Bank would not be contiguous that Palestinians would be excluded from a large part of East Jerusalem, to the point that even Israel's foreign minister at the time, Shlomo Ben-Ami, said on Democracy Now! in a debate with Norman Finkelstein and in a book he wrote, that had he been Palestinian, he would not have accepted the Camp David offer. Mm -hmm. And for me, that settles it, that we don't have to go into specific numbers and settlements and land percentages and this and that. If a major Israeli political figure at the time who was the foreign minister of Israel at the time this offer was made, acknowledged that it was not viable for Palestinians to accept as a real state. To me, that settles the conversation and just says Israel did not make a meaningful, generous offer to Palestinians. And, you know, it's Arafat did not counter at that point out of exacerbation for having spent seven years trying to argue for something sensible. And at the end of it, what gets offered is something that is not sensible, and is throwing your hands up in the air and just saying, I guess we're done here.
0: And he did, I think, at that point, have a fairly big political constituency that didn't want a two-state solution, period. Is that, is that right? I mean, the, his domestic politics included uh, some a lot of people who felt that way, some of whom uh, had guns and so on, right?
1: It's Yeah, to me, it's not so much the opposition to the two-state, it's about the level of compromise that he would be willing to accept even beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. The, the The fundamental tension, Arafat had recognized Israel's existence and- was willing to go to bat for fighting for the 1967 borders and saying a state in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem is good enough. And the extent to which Israel was not even willing to let him get close to that made it impossible for him to face domestic pressure. You know, if he had accepted whatever offer that Israel had given him, it's like, OK, you get these handful of cities in the West Bank and they're surrounded by settlements and you can pretend that's a state. Actually, one of Netanyahu's advisors at the time, also in the 1990s, had said We're going to give these areas to Palestine, referring to like isolated uh, cantons in in the West Bank, and said, quote, they can call it a state or they can call it fried chicken. I don't care. That's what they get. And that really gives you a sense of the fact that Palestinians were not being offered a meaningful state, but a sub-state that is under the control of the Israeli government.
0: Okay, now since then, uh, the settlements have grown. And if you look at the number of settlers who would have to be withdrawn, let alone the ones that under the standard plan would stay in the settlements right along Israel's border. Um, that number of settlers to withdraw has has grown significantly. I think it's now over 200,000. Do, do you think that for that and other reasons, two-state solution is now just dead, just can't happen, it's impractical, no point in talking about it or what?
1: Yeah, look, it's, We always come back to alternatives, and that's a bit of the problem. I think that is correct, that at this point, we have three quarters of a million settlers living in the West Bank and East Jerusalem total, more than 750,000. That is a huge number. And then one consideration is how many of them, if Israel were to allow these areas to become a Palestinian state, would these settlers want to exist as, you know, I don't know, would it be a minority within a Palestinian state? Would it be Israeli citizens who have residency in a Palestinian state or what that would actually look like? It seems unlikely that when Israel built those settlements, they built them with the intent of making this a part of Israel. And the level of culture shift it would take for these settlers to accept that they're living in a Palestinian state rather than Israel just seems extremely difficult to imagine. So they're more likely we are looking at a mass exodus of population to facilitate a creation of a Palestinian state at this point. And it is impractical. The extent of Israel's integration of huge parts of the occupied territories into Israel, they share the same highway system, uh, movement between the settlements and Israel is completely seamless for settlers. That would be a radical change on the ground to allow a real two state solution to happen. The only pushback on that is that a one state reality requires the complete abandonment of the Zionist project and the dream of a Jewish state. And the question is, which of these is a a lighter lift in a sense, which of these is more likely? And it just, it seems that we exist in a reality right now in which neither of these options looks very promising politically. Both are extremely difficult to imagine. And so the political future right now does not look optimistic at all in terms of what a a solution would actually look like. But what is obvious to me and and some of us who struggle with this, there are people who still cling on to the idea of a two-state solution and think that, With just the right amount of pressure on Israel, you can get that withdrawal. And there are people who have given up on it and believe that we have to fight for a single state with equality for all and have the South Africa apartheid example, the end of Jim Crow in the U.S., the fundamental transformation of a state from one that privileges one group of people over another to a state that is for all of its citizens and all the people it rules over. In whatever direction this goes politically, and and I know the arguments about this are extremely long and, and, and wide and complex the first step as far as i'm concerned is ending support for israeli occupation regardless of what the specific political configuration afterwards ends up being so i'm content saying that the starting point is the us has to stop supporting israeli military occupation and that means withholding military funding until that military occupation comes to an end and then we can figure out what the political solution is actually going to look like well, well that that gets
0: back to one of my initial reactions to october 7th being This is not going to be good for the Palestinians because that reinforced in the idea of many American minds or created in their minds, the idea that, look, these Palestinians are animals. I mean, these are terrorists. You just can't deal with them. Uh, And now there has been, of course, this uh, kind of conspicuous emergence of, uh, you know, pro-Palestinian sentiment in America. And that's not nothing. But if you look at the whole landscape of American politics, we are a long way from a, a president of either party significantly departing from current policy. Because with the Republicans, you have the the evangelical, the the, the Zionist Christians, and uh, on the and on both Republican and Democratic side, you have non-trivial number of, of pro-Israel donors. And uh, on the Democratic side, if you consider young and old together, there's just a lot of grassroots opinion on Israel's side, even though it's now split in a way that greatly complicates life for Joe Biden. Um, so, I mean, and it, I, I, I guess I would say, if you imagine at the other extreme, and I'd like to, I'd like to get your take on why we haven't seen more of this, because this is another question you hear. is like, where is their uh, Mandela? Or where's the Palestinians' Mandela? Where's the Martin Luther King? Uh, if I imagine a world in which October 7th hadn't happened, but what had happened is like demonstrations in the West Bank and Gaza, huge demonstrations saying, we just want to vote. We are ruled by Israel. I mean, that would be especially clear-cut logic in the West Bank, where the occupation is direct and on the ground. We are ruled by Israel. They call themselves a democracy. We want the vote. If that had however improbable that is for local political reasons, if that had happened, I think you'd be closer to a solution. And I, I guess my question is, A, do you disagree? You know, Because of the effect on international opinion, American opinion, A, do you disagree? And B, in any event, why haven't we seen more of that?
1: Sure. I'll, I'll take your question in two parts. I'll first address this, this question of, of American perceptions because of October 7th. My problem with that is the extent to which that perception is one-sided, and I think biased media coverage plays into this very, very significantly. That people can watch October 7th and say, okay, you can't make peace with Hamas, they have to be destroyed. But literally decades of far greater atrocities by the Israeli government against Palestinians don't produce the same reaction. Nobody says, okay, Israel is dropping white phosphorus and killing people by the thousands and denying people water and, and, and stealing people's land and shooting unarmed demonstrators. You can't make peace with this government, it just has to be dismantled. Nobody says that. And that's, I, I think, uh, an inequality that really bothers me deeply. And I think American mainstream media coverage plays significantly into that in which we constantly play up Palestinian violence and humanize Israeli victims and then completely dehumanize Palestinian victims of far greater Israeli violence. So just wanted to flag that frustration as as creating that a little bit of that, that sense of inequality in which if we're going to compare atrocities, the question ought to be, how can you make peace with the Israeli government and what does have to, cha- what, what needs to change on the Israeli side as a starting point? Um, on the question of where is the Palestinian Mandela or Gandhi and all of this, the truth is they are rotting in Israeli prisons or they have been killed by Israel. And we have endless examples of that. I was talking a little bit earlier. And, and
0: about- you think intentionally killed because they have the potential or Absolutely. jailed. As with, I guess, Mar- what, Marwan Bergti or somebody, because yeah. they have the potential to lead a peaceful resistance. I, I think that's
1: right. Um, the the you know, Ahmad Aburtema is is a name of of a significant Palestinian figure in Gaza who had led the unarmed march on Israel's fence to demand precisely what you were talking about, of we want to go, you know, 70% of the population in Gaza was driven out of Israel in 1948. And so it was marching from that besieged strip to the fence saying, let us back, we want to be equals in our own land. That is effectively the meaning of that protest. Israel not only opened fire on the protesters at the time, but in this latest round of violence that is ongoing right now in Gaza, uh, Ahmed Tema's 10 year old son has been killed and he has been severely injured as well. And you have just countless examples of people who rot in Israeli prisons without charge or trial, people convicted by military courts in which um, They're forced to sign confessions through torture, signing documents in Hebrew in a language they don't speak. There is no really meaningful political legal system that treats Palestinians fairly. It is a military system that produces near 100 percent conviction rate um, where children go to prison for lengthy sentences for throwing rocks at Israeli tanks that have no business being on Palestinian streets in the first place. Because throwing a rock at a tank of an occupying force is frankly Perfectly legitimate under international law. And yet you have these Palestinian teenagers who are languishing in lengthy prison sentences in Israel because of it. You have an effort to crush nonviolent resistance or symbolically violent resistance, like throwing rocks at tanks, um, that is really ongoing. And it's a it's a little bit of Israel not allowing a central figure to emerge in that nonviolent protest movement, that they crush it left and right and they suppress it. Um, and Palestinians having tried everything, the only time the world pays attention to them is when there is an act of Palestinian violence. And then the question of how do we solve this problem becomes part of the conversation. The message to Palestinians over and over again is that we will not pay attention to you unless you're violent. Because when you're engaging in boycotts or protesting in an unarmed way, or going to the UN where the US keeps using its veto to to stop any accountability for Israel at the UN Security Council, The pattern is suppressing every method of resistance until they act out violently. And then it finally hits the international stage and we start having conferences and and conversations about how we need to solve that problem. That's the the fundamental injustice, I think, that that we're witnessing um, that pushes Palestinians in the direction of violence because they feel like there is no other way to get the world's attention for decades, again, of Israeli brutal occupation and apartheid and land theft that has just never stopped since the day, Israel was created, and then since then, taking over the occupied Palestinian territories in a way that is illegal. Okay,
0: uh, we're at the top of the hour. I know you gotta go. Do you have time for one more quick question? Happy,
1: happy to take one more, Okay,
0: sure. the, in that case, I'm gonna exploit this opportunity and make it two quick questions, but you don't have to answer both. I'll ask them together, and you can say what you will. First question is, um, is there on paper, whether produced by Palestinians, lefty Israelis, Americans, whatever, uh, a, a plan for transition to a one-state solution that you would recommend, uh, yes. and B, are you have you you complained about American media coverage? Has that improved? Do you think in the in the in the in the wake of October seventh, at least in media outlets that have a substantial kind of young liberal constituency, like New York Times, MSNBC, CNN? Have you seen what you consider more balanced? Those are the two questions.
1: On, on the question of one state first, I'll say that there is a ton of literature on it. There are many prominent advocates of it. The problem remains, I think, as you say, is, is the question, is is there a paper about how to get there? Uh-huh. And I don't think that exists because, again, it is extremely difficult to imagine the political pathway to that outcome. Just we don't have a political reality right now that is ripe for us to move in that direction. So much of the literature on it is simply explaining the moral case for it, why it is more just to have mm-hmm. one state in which everybody is equal and how that's desirable in the long-term, how that is a better future for both Israelis and Palestinians. But in terms of an actual blueprint of how to move from the current reality that we have into that, um, I don't think as far as I know, and uh, if if I find it, I'll throw it up. I'll message you afterwards. If, I, if, okay. if somebody takes issue with that, I'd be happy to share the, um, if that exists somewhere to, okay. to share that with, with everyone. Um, on the question of media coverage, prior to October 7th, there had been a very gradual improvement as far as I was concerned, is that for the longest time, we had a complete reversal of roles in Israel and Palestine in American media, where the occupied and the oppressed were the scary terrorists and where the occupiers and the oppressors were the victims. That was the dominant narrative. And as time went on, as American Jewish public opinion in the United States started splitting more as more progressive Jewish voices started insisting that AIPAC does not speak for the American Jewish community. Um, As the Israeli government grew more racist and blatant in its violence and violations and racism against Palestinians, all of that produced an inherent shift in coverage that started putting Israel and Palestine on par with each other. It became a both sides kind of issue rather than oppressor and oppressed. In a sense, it is obviously a huge improvement to the complete reversal of roles that we had in the first place, but it had not reached a point to where it was accurately depicting the situation. Nonetheless, it was progress that I was happy to keep building on and saying that we're moving in the right direction. October 7th happened and it felt like a complete. We just reverted back 20 years in Mm -hmm. in the initial coverage for the following few weeks after, in which we were back to, again, rightly so, deeply human stories about Israeli victims of Hamas violence, uh, lengthy like emotional interviews with parents whose kids had been taken hostage. All of this is perfectly legitimate and there's nothing wrong with it until you contrast it with the complete and total disregard for Palestinian lives and the extent to which um, Palestinians are invisible and that the context of injustice and siege and occupation was not part of the conversation at all. It's as if history began on October 7th, with Israel minding its own business and and Palestinians just living their own lives. And then for no reason, Hamas deciding to carry out this horrific attack that they did. Um, That was a deep problem. Since then, we've witnessed some improvement. Um, MSNBC that has hosts like Ayman Muhyiddin and Mahdi Hassan and Ali Velchi um, and Joey Reed, there have been a few who have done really positive coverage, but in terms of scale, It feels still minor compared to the dominant narrative still being one of Israeli victimhood to Palestinian violence. And only because the scale of killing of Palestinian civilians has grown so significant that we're now beginning to see a little bit more of that in the coverage. But it is confined to a very specific narrative in which the Israeli government is the protagonist in the story. They're the good guys. Hamas is the bad guys. And Palestinian civilians are poor civilians who are caught in the middle and are Um, effectively collateral damage. But nowhere in the narrative, for the most part, is there emphasis on the Israeli government being, frankly, the primary villain in the story and its policy being the driving force of all the violence and bloodshed and hatred that we're witnessing. Um, And I think we have a long way to go before we get to people understanding that reality. But because of the generational shift where older people rely on these traditional media outlets, whereas younger people access their news on social media for the most part, We do see that young people get this issue much, much better, have a deeper appreciation for the injustice that Israel has imposed on Palestinians, the scale of Israeli violence against Palestinians and this demand for an end to the to to the idea that Israel is an exception and and a country that is above the rules and above the law. The idea that we must hold Israel accountable to the same standard that we hold any other country and to start moving towards a genuinely equitable U.S. foreign policy that pushes us in the direction of a genuine peace that is based on justice.
0: Okay. I will let you get back to uh, your work. Thanks. And speaking of social media, where where can people find you? On
1: Twitter, is your Is your Twitter handle uh, just your full name? Just my full name, Omar Badar. And on Instagram, it's first letter of my name and last name. So it's OBadar on Instagram.
0: Okay. And I am Robert Ryder on Twitter. And this is a non-zero podcast. If you're watching on YouTube and you like this, Smash the like button. Uh, you can also rate and review and so on. Subscribe to the non-zero newsletter. Uh, and uh, thanks again, Omar. Uh, I, I uh, Maybe down the road, we'll, we'll check in. It would be nice if uh, it were under ha- happier circumstances, but we may have to wait a while if that's going to be the case.
1: Indeed. It's always great to speak with you, Bob, and certainly would look forward to, to a conversation on better and more hopeful times.
0: All right. Take care. Thanks. See you.